0: Hey, you know how one of the key ideas we've been exploring in the podcast is the impossibility of separating out the ecological and the social when it comes to justice? I mean that there's no meaningful environmentalism without social justice, yet it's often forgotten when we talk about environmental matters.
1: Indeed.
0: Well, maybe a similar argument can be made for the ways we don't, at least often, think about what gets lost when we say justice. I mean, without thinking about, Different strands of justice and injustice.
1: You mean like environmental justice and racial justice? Exactly. We should really have an episode about this. Ian, check your philo facts to see who we can call up.
0: I got it. We can ask Mira Ghani, uh, policy coordinator at ICOLES, the European Network for Community-Led Initiatives on Climate Change and Sustainability, and Tamara Steger, Associate Professor at the Department of Environmental Sciences and Policy at the Central European University. They'd be wonderful.
1: Sweet. Let's do it. Let's get them on the podcast.
0: Do you know what a filofax is? No. <laughs> <laughs> So let me start first then with Mira because she's not here and uh, Tamara is sitting next to me in the studio. But I was wondering, like, so what do you think? Like, uh, can there be any sort of environmental justice without racial justice?
2: Mm. Short answer to that, no. (laughs) (laughs) They're both uh, very, very tied. And um, environmental justice, um, at least the way it's understood and the way um, that was framed during the first people's conference in, I believe it was 1991, where there were 17 principles listed around environmental justice and what it entails. Racial justice was a big part of it. Um, A lot of environmental issues impact people of color and marginalized and excluded communities more than other uh, communities which have more, Affluence, more access to resources, more opportunities to mitigate any kind of environmental impacts. And so um, there's also this concept, um, which I'm sure you all are familiar with, is environmental racism, which is about the impact of environmental degradation and destruction on communities of color. And if you look, at it geographically you also get evidence of what the environment is like in areas where people of uh, color reside and uh, that's where a lot of the industry tends to be that's where a lot of the deforestation happens that's where you see lack of resources being um, provided to mitigate some of these challenges. Um, That's the same case in the US. Uh, You've heard the issues around Flint, Michigan and water. And so these um, environmentalism sadly has a long history of colonialism tied to it and how land of indigenous communities has been taken over. Indigenous communities, you know, even though they represent 20% of the world's population, they care for 80% of its resources. And so they've been in the right relationship with their environment and um, as what they call bioregions for a lot longer than we have and others have, and they've been managing the planet's resources in a certain way and when you take over their lands and take over their resources and take over their ability to manage then it leads to a lot of the impacts that we're seeing now in terms of not just the environment but also climate impacts i'll end, i'll stop there
0: that's great. I mean, and so tomorrow, maybe just, to, I mean, there's two, two ways I want to take the conversation. One is talking about the, the question of environmental racism that Mira mentioned and the other is this, this colonial aspect, but maybe first, let's talk about the, the first one sort of, um, and what, you know, from your work in the region where we are now in, in central and Eastern Europe, like how environmental racism has played out here.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I agree with Mira. You cannot have environmental justice without having equality of all kinds. So not only along the lines of race, but also class and gender issues. And these are intertwined very much so um, with racism, probably at the top in terms of um, filtering down into all those other areas and manifesting in those different ways. Um, so in this region, um, the research that I've done is mostly involving Roma communities. And there's clearly an issue there, but also there, we also identified class issues um in central and eastern europe so there's class discrimination as well and poverty usually runs into in an integrated fashion with with um you know hmm, i don't like the word marginalized or vulnerable because it takes the uh (laughs) it takes the responsibility off the perpetrator and kind of focuses on the person who's already experiencing the struggles uh so let me say subordinated um Uh, groups. So, yeah. So, but you definitely can't take, you know, the issue of race out of environmental justice. You can't have environmental justice without consideration for it. That's for sure, I think. And I would add, too, I appreciate that Mira also mentioned Indigenous communities and this globalization issue. Um, And, I mean, I can't say, you know, whether or not uh, I'm mean, not in a position to judge whether communities are living well with the environment or not, um, broadly speaking, but uh, the local recognition of communities and how they live and how they survive um, and recognition of that is key, I think. And uh, so, so, yeah, generally speaking, it's you know, important to look at environmental justice at a global scale because there's lots going on there. But also it's really important to look at local communities and how, what are their struggles and how do they find ways to to um, live well and to recognize those.
2: I just completely agree. Um, I work a lot with local communities in Europe and they're the ones who understand their needs and contexts best and also come up with the right solutions according to that so yeah completely
0: agree.
3: we probably won't disagree with each no. other much we're we have disagreements with others outside of the discussion probably
0: yeah, yeah. but what I, what I would like from both of you then is maybe uh if, if you can like some sort of concrete example that sort of shows this this argument that you're making that maybe that somehow the 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 case that local communities firstly are discriminated against on basis of of uh, of um, race or ethnicity and then also class and also that sometimes that these local communities actually know better how to manage or or work alongside or with their their local environment better than you know not only corporations but let's say like people who are working on a on a on a wider scale. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, in terms of uh, discrimination and exclusion, you can see, uh, um, I guess, clear examples. In Europe, um, the Roma community are a good example um, because they tend to be in areas where there's less access to some of the facilities that aid well-being and that make your environment better. Um, They end up in congested urban environments. I can just give by example of where I live. In Belgium, in Brussels, I live in an area which is poorly resourced. It's a mostly immigrant area, a lot of Muslim immigrants, but also Roma and people from Eastern Europe and people from Congo, more so now, and less Belgians and less other Europeans because it's um, an area which is not provided for um, with, or doesn't have the access or the resources that other neighborhoods might have. It's a a cycle because the governments are able to get more uh, revenues in terms of taxes, but also just historically, these are marginalized communities, immigrant communities that have been forgotten. And so the area that I live in doesn't have any parks nearby. You have to travel quite a way to get to a decent park. Um, it has now facilities around transport, but it's still poorly um, managed. And it is one of the most uh, heavily trafficked areas because it has a big throughway road, so it's one of the most congested, and air quality is not that great in this area as well. So this is where the immigrant communities are, and the it's not just... Um, that, you know, it's a historical lack of attention and care that goes into it. So um, this area was never developed in a way or planned in a way where there would be more access. It's the same thing with schools. Um, there are schools, but they're not well resourced. So, and they're heavily um, crowded with children. So um, some people have to go quite far to send their children to school. Same thing with hospital access. Um, Same thing with access to government facilities. Um, So it's just how the neighborhood functions um, or doesn't function because um, it's been, like I said, forgotten. But in terms of communities, if you look at the opposite, and I work with a lot of communities that have taken up the initiative to Uh, cater for their own needs and to provide for their own needs and come together to find solutions. Um, There are many across Europe. We work with transition towns, permaculture initiatives. Um, There are various eco-villages that have been set up um, across. um, Well, in in Belgium, there are a few on the outskirts, but in France, in Ireland, um, in Germany, there are a large number of eco-village communities. And then smaller initiatives where just a small commune, or we call it a commune in Belgium, but a small, area where people come together and they're like okay we we this is what this is the problem we're facing um our government is not doing anything um let's set up initiative locally um whether if that's a local community garden or a farm or they set up a sol- solidarity project where they have mutual aid for each other so there, small initiatives and bigger initiatives and ecolis um came into being because there was a collection of these um, initiatives and um, not much connection between them. So there was a collection, but not connection. And so um, Ecolis was born out of the need of bringing some of these initiatives together. And then some of these initiatives were transforming into larger movements, like transition is more than a collection of initiatives. It's a movement. Um, And then urban initiatives that were coming about and we thought um, it would be good to provide space for everyone to interact with each other, learn from each other, build communities of practice and see how we can scale this out to mainstream communities because um, a lot of these initiatives are still considered fringe um, and exist within certain bubbles. And just to come back to... um, what we were talking about earlier um, of um, racial justice, Um, I have to say having worked with a lot of these communities for about three years now, there's also an element of separation within the communities, because not everyone can afford to buy land and set up an eco-village. So a lot of these communities across Europe at least tend to be white middle-class, and so for me personally, I've also been looking at how they can open up to immigrant communities, refugee communities around them, and see how there could be a collaboration there. Um, and that's a constant struggle no matter where you are, whether you're in an urban environment, uh, working within the EU bubble, where there's also this hashtag that went that started about two years ago, Brussels So White. Um, So it's a problem everywhere for communities of color, how to integrate into um, white culture and um, organizations and communities and movements that are dominated by white middle-class people. Um, It's the same thing with extension rebellion, and other movements that have come about. So um, so that's why I use marginalized, because we are kept at the margins. So it's not as a sign of victimhood or assigning blame to the communities, but that we are kept excluded. Um, our access is revoked to a lot of these spaces, and we are kept at the margins, uh, while it should be the opposite. People of color and communities of color and those impacted by um, environmental and climate injustice should be at the center of it all.
3: Yeah, thank you. That's so interesting to hear about your uh, efforts. And and um, so this was, you know, something also of interest was, you know, the environmental movement, for example, in the United States and Earth Day in the 1970s um, and how it was predominantly a white uh, movement. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, it's funny when we think of environmental justice. So it's a, a term that has largely gained resonance as this movement in the United States that started, um, you know, around uh, hazardous waste sightings and and so on, um, in uh, predominantly Black communities and also Hispanic communities and so on. And this research by uh, Bullard, which was really uh, striking. Um, at, um and still is uh we're still trying to (laughs) go wow that's really something when you see it in the numbers like that um but uh, uh and i wanted to add a a point to that that i think of yeah i i think of environmental justice really as something that people have been struggling for for a very long time um and um you know, within communities, as well as, you know, in terms of the, you know, globalization and so on and industrialization. Um, so they've been struggling for a long time all over the world. And, um, so, you know, it's even this funny colonial type issue when you think of, well, you know, environmental justice started with the movement in the United States, but, um, yeah, I should confess we're on a podcast so you can't see, but I am a white American woman. So uh, I haven't experienced racism in the sense that others um, certainly have. Um, So for example, at one of the uh, Urban A arenas, uh, one of the participants, this resonated with me in other ways, but not in terms of the context that he was talking about, which was in within his own community. And he said, "I'm just so tired." <laughs> he said, "It's it's just constant, you know. It's every day, yep. and and uh, you could just hear it in his voice. Gosh, you know, so every moment, every day, facing uh, this kind of issue." Um, you know, from, because when we're talking about environmental justice, we're really talking about these basic quality of life issues, water, air, every day, it is the everyday. and, um, you know, often when I've told people in the streets that, oh, I work on environmental studies issues, they say, oh, like cleaning up garbage, or, you know, something nice for the elite, you know, yes, we make our streets nice and clean, that's what environmental work is, no, 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 environment, is about the everyday. And, and so, um, and that's, you know, something that environmental justice activists have brought our attention, you know, brought the world's attention to more so, um, than the mainstream environmental movement. Um, so, uh, that's been an incredibly important contribution, I think, um, to reconceptualizing and understanding, understanding the environment, also not as just something that's out there and surrounds us, exactly. surrounds us, and that's resources and so on, but it flows in and through us, and we through it, and it's you know all connected. Um, so, yeah, I, I really like your point when you think about integration um, and this issue of marginalization that, um, yeah, it's all connected. We're connected across people. No, no matter where we come from or, you know, where we're, where we're going, we're connected and we go there together, whether we like to think so or not. <laughs> I think so. Yeah.
0: You know, like one of the things I was thinking about when when you were both talking, um, I w- I was thinking back to you know, so how, how you how you put environment on on the agenda and how, how it gets put on the agenda and who puts it on the agenda, right? Because it's quite clear, you know, if, that very often we we never framed anti-colonial um movements as environmental justice movements, although very often they actually were. You know, it's like about who has the right to come and extract resources from somebody else's land or not. And the same way then I was thinking that like, when back when I used to live in England, like very often, like being involved in left-wing politics, uh, very often like left-wing groups would always say, stop talking about the environment. That's a middle-class issue. You know, like, um, you know, to, we can only start talking about the environment once we once we've solved issues, you know, that, that are more important to the to the working class. And then so the argument that I and others always used to put was like it's such a working class issue as well, you know. If you look at like slag heaps left next to you know coal mines in like what what when I was growing up, former coal mining town ta- towns, but were you know coal mining towns in the seventies and eighties, and and it's just like okay, but you know, and it's like trying to this this distinction, and I, and I sometimes wonder whether this is maybe one of the big issues that the environmental movement if we can call something like that faces is this sort of it's been sort of claimed a little bit as a middle class white space um and it, extinction rebellion maybe are a continuation of that to some degree um i mean when i when, when the sort of the the things that people in extinction rebellion are allowed to do um you would never get away with i mean i'm talking now in a uk context when i see the way that they could basically break the law in a way where they don't really fear the consequences in the same way that like a poor black man would in london you know who'd be scared to go and like provoke the police in such an obvious way so i'm just wondering like what i was wondering like how do we how do we then start to if you like to say sort of re rethink or reconceptualize or even reclaim environmental movements to stop being this sort of you know white middle-class concern and to be something more holistic and actually go back to maybe where the people who are who are feeling it and the, the sort of the brute end like how do we get in there and, and change the direction
2: yeah i think uh i wish i knew the answer i've been trying to do that for all of my activist life and all of my community organizing has been around communities of color uh, mostly those who are um most excluded and i would say uh, black trans women are some of the most excluded and uh, discriminated against if you look um, within different communities and how to center their voices because there are many many have been talking about environmental justice racial justice being connected um black feminist authors have been like order lord bell hooks activists like Grace Lee Boggs have been talking about it for decades but the fact is that nobody's listening so it's not like the voices aren't there the people aren't there the activists aren't there the work isn't being done the work is being done the fact is who gets centered and whose voices get heard and whose stories are highlighted So the starkest example would be, um, and don't get me wrong, I I love Greta Thunberg, uh, but there have been black young activists and indigenous activists and uh, girls and boys from the global south that have been talking about environmental justice, climate justice for a lot longer, but you never heard their stories. And it only became a movement which was centered around a white girl from Sweden. Um, And so there have been many cases where uh, there's been um, newspapers and media houses photoshopping black activists out of pictures of um, various activists together to focus only on the white ones. And so, yeah, it's all about framing. It's all about the white supremacist dominant culture. Um, it's all about the colonial, colonial mindset. It's all about the capitalist mindset. And it's all about the patriarchal mindset. It's about whose stories get centered and whose voices get decentered. And for me, um, I think it's about the power relations that exist within the global context. And so, unless white people are willing. To cede space and give up power, it's going to be this difficult conversation where communities of color are demanding power and demanding access. But unless the other side concedes a little bit, it's not going to happen. So um, I think this power dynamic is something that we need to reflect on within the environmental and climate justice movements. and these conversations happen not enough. But the focus always is on the science, which I am a scientist, I'm not against. Uh, the focus is always on technico- technological solutions and the narrative is all wrong when it comes to climate justice and environmental justice. It, the focus is on how the emissions are rising and how we need to adapt according to whatever carbon budget is left and how we need to get the governments and corporations. And that's fine. Of course we need corporations. There are hundred corporations responsible for 71% of the world's emissions. So yes, hold them accountable. But then the focus ends up being behavioral change, lifestyle change, and the focus shifts from systems change to individuals. And that's where the problem comes in. And unless we get the framing and the narrative and the analysis right, we're never going to
3: come to the right solutions. Really appreciate and admire your points. In an optimistic sense, I hope that we're starting to see more and more how certain things are failing us, that for uh and, th- and this takes a long time, it does. It takes a long time to shift the narrative and to shift the way we've been thinking about things and looking at things and talking about things. And um, and there is hope in, in the incredible bravery that people have to get out on the streets these days. That's I, I, the courage and the bravery to hit the streets these days, given that, for example, it's, I think, Getting increasingly difficult. I know after the Occupy movement, for example, you know a lot of cities then tried to reshift the local laws so that people couldn't congregate. Again, this idea of togetherness is very threatening, right? To to uh, so if we want to change things, coming together is 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 the most powerful thing we can do.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. I guess going back to the point Mira was making before, like. You, you have a certain togetherness, but then when when that togetherness takes place, basically, and it relates to what you were saying now, to have a reflection on all of the differences which exist in any sort of coming together, right? Yeah. Because like, I'm, I'm sure, I, I've actually never been to an eco-village, but I'm sure they are very white spaces. Um, and uh, and um, so, I mean, just constant reflection on what sort of everyday processes we put in place that make people feel included or excluded not integrated because integration is just means that you know that you should shift if you're from a marginalized group to the to the to the position of those who are superior yeah but like inclusive inclusive of different practices different ways of thinking different ways of knowing especially in relation to the environment and how those are included in a wider understanding about what sort of environmental justice could be
3: yeah yeah. And I, yeah I want to add too that you know coming together sounds great <laughs> but it's extremely difficult especially the more diverse a group is you know just trying to understand and and listen is yeah it's not easy it's not easy for sure.
2: Yeah and I want to add I think listening is key and that's often what's forgotten in conversation um too often we're in our own heads. And we're not listening really to what the other person is saying we're not present in the moment and so i think if we develop this practice of deep listening maybe things start to shift where we listen to somebody with empathy of where they're coming from and having um, the space to listen to what they're saying without feeling defensive or without feeling the need to respond um, but just from the point you were making, Tamar, earlier about how this coming together, and, and for me, that's something that I think about deeply. I think about what needs to shift for us to be developing what I call a culture of care, um, which is, um, and often care is just thought about um, either in terms of healthcare services or it's thought about in terms of the care being provided for our children or care services, other care services, or it's thought about in terms of interpersonal care. But for me, I really am thinking deeply about how we shift that focus towards more community care. And there is a lot of work being done in terms of, especially during COVID, we saw a lot of mutual aid groups come about. And so for me, a large part of this is really developing the support systems and networks um, for community care wherever you are for that everyday interaction and for that everyday of coming together and for that everyday understanding and self-care is a part of that equation because you can't keep pouring from an empty cup. And these days with all that's going on, especially for communities of color. And like you said, it takes bravery to be out on the streets. It also requires that we find space to rest and often, um, to quote um, somebody from Instagram um, who runs an account called Nap Ministry, it's uh, rest is a form of resistance for communities of color, for Black, Brown, Indigenous people within a capitalist white supremacist system. Yeah. Rest <laughs> is a form of resistance uh, because without rest, we won't be able to get on the streets. Uh, we won't be able to keep demanding and fighting for our rights and. And having these exhausting conversations um, that your colleague described, it definitely is exhausting. I feel that exhaustion every day. When I talk about a culture of care, why I center care is because for me, um, that is um, the counter to the systems of violence we have. So for me, um, the violence we see from the state in terms of police violence or any other kinds, forms of brutality is not different from to capitalist violence. It's not uh, different to environmental violence. It's not different to climate violence. So right now our systems are based on different forms of violence. It's not different to gender-based violence. So there are lots of elements for it. But for me, it's really kind of providing, shifting the narrative from the narrative narrative of scarcity, fear, and violence towards abundance, care, and um, solidarity.
0: I, I like this. I like this focus on care and solidarity because I think very often when questions, especially when questions are framed in a global sense and in terms of environmental justice, coming from a white European or global North perspective, it's never framed in terms of care and solidarity. It's often framed in terms of help and humanitarianism and all these very sort of paternalistic understandings of, you know, who has the answers and who has the, and who has the, you know, the, the need. And so, um, yeah, exactly a reframing of something which is more horizontal and something which is more mutual, like things like solidarity and care, I think is really important for any sort of global movement, but especially the environmental and climate movement, because it's, it is one planet in which we live.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you, when you were speaking Mira, about, uh, violence and so on, I I kept thinking, yeah. And look at the ones that are in prison (laughs) versus, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Maybe some of the real, uh, criminals in the world. Um, I really do believe that, um, our lives are better if we are all doing well. Uh, you know, we say that, but I, I really think that's true. If you look at a lot of the things that uh, we all feel challenged by in the world, this could really be overcome by lifting all of us up together. Um, So, yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that. I had another point and I was trying to carry it and yet listen so I thought I'll oh, put those points aside and just really listen to us things <laughs> I should have been taking notes like Ian um, <laughs> um, so yeah well it may, maybe it'll come back later but yeah yeah um, absolutely
0: i no, i mean i'm glad you lent- mentioned listen because listen is a nice segue for me to like close up the conversation because i think that <laughs> listening is actually one of the things which which is actually what i like about podcasting and, and making this podcast is that basically we're forced to really listen just to voices and um and uh, and then really pay attention to what people say in a way that we don't often unfortunately in everyday in everyday conversations or like in these sort of other i mean this is also like a a staged conversation in a sense we agreed to come together you know um people who didn't know each other you know mira and tamara to you know to have a conversation about something mm-hmm. but i hope uh it was done in a way which was based more around you know care and listening and not these sort of very performative we can also say macho ways that very often you find at you know conferences or meetings where people have to display how clever they are versus the other person instead of actually listening to the other person and and actually engaging in what they say so i hope that's been the experience for both of you if not then i'm going to cut it out it has been thank you
2: for that yeah
3: thanks so much
0: all right thank thank you guys so much Okay, okay, um I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation um, between uh, Mira and Tamara, with uh, my own little um, yeah pointers along the way or guides along the way. I think one of the one of the interesting things that came out of that, you tell me, is 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 maybe how it points to something fundamental that Mira brought up about often questioning systemic uh, versus individual. I guess, solutions or attempts at changing things um, in when it comes to environmental and also then racial justice matters, right? I mean, is it enough to recycle? Is it enough to uh, not personally be a racist uh, and so forth if we want to change things?
1: Well, no, and obviously the answer to that is no. I mean, we won't solve the big environmental challenges just by recycling our water bottles. But I think the issue is it is just such a huge existential, hard to grasp problem that we're all facing and saying, well, we just have to solve all institutional problems that won't give you any more kind of gratification or hope for the future. And so, you know, a lot of times it's the individual things that feel make you feel empowered. Um, but saying we need to be less racist as a society or break down institutional barriers or, or whatnot, all these buzzwords that people keep saying, I just think that leaves you very hopeless at times
0: yeah and so maybe that that was the other thing that, that I guess a thread that runs through it and maybe thread that runs through all of our podcasts though so far is I guess a bit of a tension between being pragmatic and maybe being a bit well, mean maybe, maybe idealistic is a bit of a mean thing to say but maybe thinking beyond the immediate sort of what we can do in the next in the next years or so and, and I guess that's uh, something else which was a tension I suppose in uh, in this discussion which is is which is going to be a tension which is hard to resolve with anything political, right? Like, do we want to have a pragmatic type of, of movement that is not maybe so radical and transformative uh, that brings more people on board? Or do we want to have something which is, you know, more deep-rooted in its sort of ideas of what it wants to bring about and change?
1: Well, and that's the issue I think I'm really struggling with, you know, listening to, to this podcast and thinking about environmental justice and racial justice is... The world right now, look at any country, is just so partisan and so divisive, and I feel like we can't seem to agree on anything, even basic fundamentals like caring about the environment. I think it'd be so great if the environment environmental movement could be this kind of unifying point across class, across. Um, political lines, but unfortunately, it's just not the case. And, And I think while racial justice is so important to bring up, because obviously, racial justice is entirely linked to environmental justice. I think making racial justice the focus within environmental justice is not this unifying point, unfortunately, just given kind of our political environments today. And so even though it's very important, is that actually the best thing for the movement, let's say?
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to disagree with you there because I'm going to say it's clearly a very political thing, and there are losers in the environmental movement, and those losers uh, are going to fight against any sort of any sort of transformative change that we want to bring about. And I think we just have to say to them, we have to, we have to be maybe maybe then be uh, a little bit more honest about the fact is that we can't bring everyone on board because you know it will mean a lifestyle change for for people it will mean certain companies will go out of business <laughs> maybe or or you know have to fundamentally change their models of business um
1: so you're thinking by losers you're thinking big companies
0: yeah and and even and even let's say like i mean if we talk unless you know someone invents a a um, solar powered plane tomorrow i mean it's also going to be like you know we're going to have to fly less around we do fly i mean before corona we flew around europe all the time we're going to have to um, yeah, go on less holidays. Maybe we're gonna, you know, these are these are some things, and we're gonna have to change the way business is done. And uh, and so all of these things, I mean, are actually things that have have to change, shall we say? And and it's and it's and I guess it's similar in asking questions about, you know, the environmental movements, whiteness that we talked about a little bit. I mean, it's also, you know, it it means that if if there is gonna be, you know, racial justice alongside environmental justice, it's also gonna mean a re. Um, configuration, if you like, about the sort of the the environmentalist scene, and maybe less of the sort of polite environmentalism, mm-hmm. and more of the radical stuff. So it means, in a sense, there are also losers in the sense of who has a voice and and, and so forth. It's not a it's not a uh, it's not a thing where we can just bring in different voices and say that okay, now that means that more more and more people have a voice, what it will mean is there's only so much space, shall we say, in any sort of movement or any sort of idea. So if we do bring in communities who have experienced marginalization through, you know, various um forms of injustice, it will actually mean less space for people who are less marginalized to actually have a say as well.
1: Yeah. I mean yeah. a redigging yeah. of power. Redigging of power, absolutely. And I think environmental Discussions will become an increasingly large part of our political lives. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a certain aspect of if this is going to become a larger part of our political lives, you know, I can have more power by being part of this movement. And that doesn't necessarily cater to a diverse crowd.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think this is something we can keep discussing in future podcasts. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, as ever, you can get in touch. How can people get in touch, Kate?
1: Yes, you can email us through our contact form found at our website, urban-arena.eu or at urbana.ceu.edu. And you can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle at arena underscore urban.
0: And one of the people who did get in touch this month was Meredith Haynes, and she is our Urban Arena podcast correspondent uh, this month, and she has sent us this short audio clip that we will use to play out the episode. Uh, as ever, thanks so much for listening, and bye.
1: Bye.
4: What does a just and sustainable city look like? Um, as a climate activist, I do like to think about what we are working towards and uh, positive imagining of our future. So um, what I might have described is an electrified city that has energy efficient buildings, free public transportation, dedicated green spaces, pedestrian friendly corridors, cleaner and quieter than today due to the switch to renewable energy and incentives to reduce waste, particularly plastic, sustain clean air and water, provide a wide array of benefits to people and wildlife. For example, evidence shows that due to fewer trees, more asphalt and other issues, temperatures can be more than 10 degrees hotter in poorer neighborhoods. So some of the detail of what a just city would look like would be one that prioritises investing in tree canopy, pocket parks and urban agriculture spaces, a just city would have many partners at the table equally contributing to the decision making.
0: This podcast is part of the three-year project Urbana, urban arenas for sustainable and just cities. It was funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme.